Section 17 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd. The Battle of Arbella, B.C. 331, by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. Part 2. Under Alexander, the phalanx consisted of an aggregate of 18,000 men, who were divided into six brigades of 3,000 each. These were again subdivided into regiments and companies, and the men were carefully trained to wheel, to face about, to take more ground, or to close up, as the emergencies of the battle required. Alexander also arrayed troops armed in a different manner, in the intervals of the regiments of his phalangites, who could prevent their line from being pierced and their companies taken in flank when the nature of the ground prevented a close formation, and who could be withdrawn when a favorable opportunity arrived for closing up the phalanx or any of its brigades for a charge, or when it was necessary to prepare to receive cavalry. Besides the phalanx, Alexander had a considerable force of infantry who were called shield-bearers. They were not so heavily armed as the phalangites, or, as was the case with the Greek regular infantry in general, but they were equipped for close fight as well as for skirmishing, and were far superior to the ordinary irregular troops of Greek warfare. They were about 6,000 strong. Besides these, he had several bodies of Greek regular infantry, and he had archers, slingers, and javelin men, who fought also with broadsword and target, and who were principally supplied him by the highlanders of Illyria and Thracia. The main strength of his cavalry consisted in two chosen regiments of cuirassiers, one Macedonian and one Thessalian, each of which was about 1,500 strong. They were provided with long lances and heavy swords, and horse, as well as man was fully equipped with defensive armor. Other regiments of regular cavalry were less heavily armed, and there were several bodies of light horsemen, whom Alexander's conquests in Egypt and Syria had enabled him to mount superbly. A little before the end of August, Alexander crossed the Euphrates at Thapsacus. A small corps of Persian cavalry under Mazeus retiring before him. Alexander was too prudent to march down through the Mesopotamian deserts, and continued to advance eastward with the intention of passing the Tigris. And then, if he was unable to find Darius and bring him to action, of marching southward on the left side of that river along the skirts of a mountainous district where his men would suffer less from heat and thirst 
and where provisions would be more abundant. Darius, finding that his adversary was not being enticed into the march through Mesopotamia against his capital, determined to remain on the battleground which he had chosen on the left of the Tigris, where, if his enemy met a defeat or a check, the destruction of the invaders would be certain, with two such rivers as the Euphrates and the Tigris in their rear. The Persian king availed himself to the utmost of every advantage in his power. He caused a large space of ground to be carefully leveled for the operation of his scythe-armed chariots, and he deposited his military stores in the strong town of Arbella, about twenty miles in his rear. The rhetoricians of after ages have loved to describe Darius Codomanus as a second Xerxes, in ostentation and imbecility, but a fair examination of his generalship in this his last campaign shows that he was worthy of bearing the same name as his great predecessor, the royal son of Histaspes. On learning that Darius was with a large army on the left of the Tigris, Alexander hurried forward and crossed that river without opposition. He was at first unable to procure any certain intelligence of the precise position of the enemy, and after giving his army a short interval of rest, he marched for four days down the left bank of the river. A moralist may pause upon the fact that Alexander must in this march have passed within a few miles of the ruins of Nineveh, the great city of the primeval conquerors of the human race. Neither the Macedonian king nor any of his followers knew what those vast mounds had once been. They had already sunk into utter destruction, and it is only within the last few years that the intellectual energy of one of our own countrymen has rescued Nineveh from its long centuries of oblivion. On the fourth day of Alexander's southward march, his advance guard reported that a body of enemy's cavalry was in sight. He instantly formed his army in order for battle, and directed them to advance steadily, he rode forward at the head of some squadrons of cavalry, and charged the Persian horse whom he found before him. This was a mere reconnoitring party and they broke and fled immediately. But the Macedonians made some prisoners, and from them Alexander found that Darius was posted only a few miles off, and learned the strength of the army that he had with him. On receiving this news, Alexander halted, and gave his men repose for four days, so that they should go into action fresh and vigorous. He also fortified his camp and deposited in it all his military stores and all his sick and disabled soldiers, intending to advance upon the enemy with the serviceable part of his army perfectly unencumbered. After this halt he moved forward, while it was yet dark, with the intention of reaching the enemy and attacking them at break of day. About halfway between the camps, there were some undulations of the ground, 
which concealed the two armies from each other's view. But on Alexander arriving at their summit, he saw, by early light, the Persian host arrayed before him, and he probably also observed traces of some engineering operation having been carried on along part of the ground in front of them. Not knowing that these marks had been caused by the Persians having leveled the ground for the free use of their war chariots, Alexander suspected that hidden pitfalls had been prepared with a view of disordering the approach of his cavalry. He summoned the council of war forthwith. Some of the officers were for attacking instantly at all hazards, but the more prudent opinion of Parmenio prevailed and it was determined not to advance farther till the battleground had been carefully surveyed. Alexander halted his army on the heights, and, taking with him some light-armed infantry and some cavalry, he passed part of the day in reconnoitring the enemy and observing the nature of the ground which he had to fight on. Darius wisely refrained from moving from his position to attack the Macedonians, on the eminences which they occupied, and the two armies remained until night without molesting each other. On Alexander's return to his headquarters, he summoned his generals and superior officers together, and telling them that he knew well that their zeal wanted no exhortation, he besought them to do their utmost in encouraging and instructing those whom each commanded to do their best in the next day's battle. They were to remind them that they were now not going to fight for a province, as they had hitherto fought, but they were about to decide by their swords the dominion of all Asia. Each officer ought to impress this upon his subalterns, and they should urge it on their men. Their natural courage required no long words to excite its ardor, but they should be reminded of the paramount importance of steadiness in action. The silence in the ranks must be unbroken as long as silence was proper, but when the time came for the charge, the shout and the cheer must be full of terror for the foe. The officers were to be alert in receiving and communicating orders, and everyone was to act as if he felt that the whole result of the battle depended on his own single good conduct. Having thus briefly instructed his generals, Alexander ordered that the army should sup and take their rest for the night. Darkness had closed over the tents of the Macedonians when Alexander's veteran general, Parmenio, came to him and proposed that they should make a night attack on the Persians. The king is said to have answered that he scorned to filch a victory, and that Alexander must conquer openly and fairly. Arian justly remarks that Alexander's resolution was as wise as it was spirited. Besides the confusion and uncertainty which are inseparable from night engagements, the value of Alexander's victory would have been impaired if gained under circumstances which might supply the enemy 
with any excuse for his defeat and encourage him to renew the contest. It was necessary for Alexander not only to beat Darius, but to gain such a victory as should leave his rival without apology and without hope of recovery. The Persians, in fact, expected and were prepared to meet a night attack. Such was the apprehension that Darius entertained of it, that he formed his troops at evening in order of battle, and kept them under arms all night. The effect of this was that the morning found them jaded and dispirited, while it brought their adversaries all fresh and vigorous against them. The written order of battle, which Darius himself caused to be drawn up, fell into the hands of the Macedonians after the engagement, and Aristobulus copied it into his journal. We thus possess, through Arian, unusually authentic information as to the composition and arrangement of the Persian army. On the extreme left were the Bactrian, Dan, and Aracosian cavalry. Next to these, Darius placed the troops from Persia proper, both horse and foot. Then came the Susians, and next to these, the Caducians. These forces made up the left wing. Darius's own station was in the center. This was composed of the Indians, the Carians, the Mardian archers, and the division of Persians who were distinguished by the golden apples that formed the knobs of their spears. Here also were stationed the bodyguard of the Persian nobility. Besides these, there were in the center, formed in deep order, the Axian and Babylonian troops and the soldiers from the Red Sea. The brigade of Greek mercenaries whom Darius had in service and who alone were considered fit to stand the charge of the Macedonian phalanx, was drawn up on either side of the royal chariot. The right wing was composed of the Colossirians and Mesopotamians, the Medes, the Parthians, the Satians, the Tapurians, Hyrcanians, Albanians and Sassacine. In advance of the line on the left wing were placed the Scythian cavalry, with a thousand of the Bactrian horse and a hundred scythe-armed chariots. The elephants and fifty scythe-armed chariots were ranged in front of the center, and fifty more chariots with the Armenian and Cappadocian cavalry were drawn up in advance of the right wing. Thus arrayed, the great host of King Darius passed the night that to many thousands of them was the last of their existence. The morning of the 1st of October dawned slowly to their wearied watching, and they could hear the note of the Macedonian trumpet sounding to arms, and could see the King Alexander's forces descend from their tents on the heights and form in order of battle on the plain. There was deep need of skill as well as valor on Alexander's side.
and few battlefields have witnessed more consummate generalship than was now displayed by the Macedonian king. There were no natural barriers by which he could protect his flanks, and not only was he certain to be overlapped on either wing by the vast lines of the Persian army, but there was imminent risk of their circling round him and charging him in the rear while he advanced against their center. He formed, therefore, a second or reserve line, which was to wheel round if required, or detach troops to either flank, as the enemy's movements might necessitate. And thus, with their whole army ready at any moment to be thrown into one vast hollow square, the Macedonians advanced in two lines against the enemy, Alexander himself leading on the right wing, and the renowned phalanx forming the center, while Parmenio commanded on the left. Such was the general nature of the disposition which Alexander made of his army. But we have in Arian the details of the position of each brigade and regiment. And as we know that these details were taken from the journals of Macedonian generals, it is interesting to examine them, and to read the names and stations of King Alexander's generals and colonels, in this the greatest of his battles. The eight regiments of the Royal Horse Guards formed the right of Alexander's line. Their colonels were Clitus whose regiment was on the extreme right, the post of peculiar danger. Glocius, Ariston, Sapolis, Heraclides, Demetrius, Meliager, and Hegelochus. Philotas was general of the whole division. Then came the shield-bearing infantry. Nicanor was their general. Then came the phalanx in six brigades. Quinus's brigade was on the right and nearest to the shield-bearers. Next to this stood the brigade of Perdicas, then Meliagoras, then Polyspercons, and then the brigade of Aminias, but which was now commanded by Simias as Aminias had been sent to Macedonia to levy recruits. Then came the infantry of the left wing, under the command of Craterus. Next to Craterus' infantry were placed the cavalry regiments of the Allies, with Erigius for their general. The Thessalian cavalry commanded by Philippus were next, and held the extreme left of the whole army. The whole left wing was entrusted to the command of Parmenio, who had round his person the Pharsalian regiment of cavalry, which was the strongest and best of all the Thessalian horse regiments. The center of the second line was occupied by a body of phalangite infantry, formed of companies which were drafted for this purpose from each of the brigades of their phalanx. The officers in command of this corps were ordered to be ready to face about if the enemy should succeed in gaining the rear of the army. 
on the right of this reserve of infantry in the second line and behind the royal horse guards alexander placed half the agrian light-armed infantry under atalus and with them brisson's body of macedonian archers and cleander's regiment of foot he also placed in this part of his army Manida's squadron of cavalry and aretes and ariston's light horse Manidas was ordered to watch if the enemy's cavalry tried to turn their flank, and if they did so, to charge them before they wheeled completely round, and so take them in flank themselves. A similar force was arranged on the left of the second line for the same purpose. The Thracian infantry of Citalces were placed there and Keranus' regiment of the cavalry of the Greek allies, and Agathon's troops of the Odrysians' irregular horse. The extreme left of the second line in this quarter was held by Andromachus's cavalry. A division of Thracian infantry was left in guard of the camp. In advance of the right wing and center was scattered a number of light-armed troops, of javelin men and bowmen with the intention of warding off the charge of the armed chariots conspicuous by the brilliancy of his armor and by the chosen band of officers who were round his person alexander took his own station as his custom was in the right wing at the head of his cavalry and when all the arrangements for the battle were complete and his generals were fully instructed how to act in each probable emergency, he began to lead his men toward the enemy. It was ever his custom to expose his life freely in battle, and to emulate the personal prowess of his great ancestor Achilles. Perhaps in the bold enterprise of conquering Persia, it was politic for Alexander to raise his army's daring to the utmost, by the example of his own heroic valor and in his subsequent campaigns the love of the excitement of the ruptures of the strife may have made him like murat continue from choice a custom which he commenced from duty but he never suffered the ardor of the soldier to make him lose the coolness of the general Great reliance had been placed by the Persian king on the effects of the scythe-bearing chariots. It was designed to launch these against the Macedonian phalanx and to follow them up by a heavy charge of cavalry, which, it was hoped, would find the ranks of the spearmen disordered by the rush of the chariots and easily destroy this most formidable part of Alexander's force. In front, therefore, of the Persian center, where Darius took his station, and which it was supposed that the phalanx would attack, the ground had been carefully leveled and smoothed, so as to allow the chariots to charge over it with their full sweep and speed. As the Macedonian army approached the Persian, Alexander found that the front of his whole line barely equaled the front of the Persian center, so that he was outflanked on his right 
by the entire left wing of the enemy and by their entire right wing on his left. His tactics were to assail some one point of the hostile army and gain a decisive advantage. While he refused as far as possible the encounter along the rest of the line, he therefore inclined his order of march to the right, so as to enable his right wing and center to come into collision with the enemy on as favorable terms as possible, although the maneuver might in some respect compromise his left. The effect of this oblique movement was to bring the phalanx and his own wing nearly beyond the limits of the ground which the Persians had prepared for the operations of the chariots, and Darius, fearing to lose the benefit of this arm against the most important parts of the Macedonian force, ordered the Scythian and Bactrian cavalry, who were drawn up in advance on his extreme left, to charge round upon Alexander's right wing and check its farther lateral progress. Against these assailants Alexander sent from his second line Menida's cavalry. As these proved too few to make head against the enemy, he ordered Ariston also from the second line with his right horse, and Cleander with his foot in support of Menidas. The Bactrians and Scythians now began to give way, but Darius reinforced them by the mass of Bactrian cavalry from his main line, and an obstinate cavalry fight now took place. The Bactrians and Scythians were numerous, and were better armed than the horsemen under Menidas and Ariston, and the loss at first was heaviest on the Macedonian side. But still, the European cavalry stood the charge of the Asiatics, and at last, by their superior discipline and by acting in squadrons that supported each other, instead of fighting in a confused mass like the barbarians, the Macedonians broke their adversaries and drove them off the field. Darius now directed the scythe-armed chariots to be driven against Alexander's horse guards and the phalanx and these formidable vehicles were accordingly sent rattling across the plain against the Macedonian line. When we remember the alarm which the war chariots of the Britons created among Caesar's legions, we shall not be prone to deride this arm of ancient warfare as always useless. The object of the chariots was to create unsteadiness in the ranks against which they were driven, and squadrons of cavalry followed close upon them to profit by such disorder. But the Asiatic chariots were rendered ineffective at Arbella by the light-armed troops, whom Alexander had specially appointed for the service and who, wounding the horses and drivers with their missile weapons, and running alongside so as to cut the traces or seize the reins, marred the intended charge, and the few chariots that reached the phalanx passed harmlessly through the internals which the spearmen opened for them, and were easily captured in the rear. A mass of the Asiatic cavalry was now, for the second time, collected against Alexander's extreme right, 
and moved round it with a view of gaining the flank of his army. At the critical moment when their own flanks were exposed by this evolution, Aretes dashed on the Persian squadrons with his horsemen from Alexander's second line. While Alexander thus met and baffled all the flanking attacks of the enemy, with troops brought up from his second line, he kept his own horse guards and the rest of the front line of his wing fresh and ready to take advantage of the first opportunity for striking a decisive blow. This soon came. A large body of horse who were posted on the Persian left wing nearest to the center quitted their station and rode off to help their comrades in the cavalry fight that still was going on at the extreme right of Alexander's wing against the detachments from his second line. This made a huge gap in the Persian array, and into this space Alexander instantly charged with his guard and all the cavalry of his wing, and then, pressing toward his left, he soon began to make havoc in the left flank of the Persian center. The shield-bearing infantry now charged also among the reeling masses of the Asiatics, and five of the brigades of the phalanx, with the irresistible might of their sarissas, bore down the Greek mercenaries of Darius, and dug their way through the Persian center. In the early part of the battle, Darius had showed skill and energy, and he now, for some time, encouraged his men by voice and example to keep firm. But the lances of Alexander's cavalry and the pikes of the phalanx now pressed nearer and nearer to him. His charioteer was struck down by a javelin at his side, and at last Darius's nerve failed him, and, descending from his chariot, he mounted on a fleet horse and galloped from the plain regardless of the state of the battle in other parts of the field, where matters were going on much more favorably for his cause, and where his presence might have done much toward gaining a victory. Alexander's operations with his right and center had exposed his left to an immensely preponderating force of the enemy. Parmenio kept out of action as long as possible, but Mazeus, who commanded the Persian right wing, advanced against him, completely outflanked him, and pressed him severely with reiterated charges by superior numbers. Seeing the distress of Parmenio's wing, Simias, who commanded the 6th Brigade of the Phalanx, which was next to the left wing, did not advance with other brigades in the great charge upon the Persian center but kept back to cover Parmenio's troops on their right flank, as otherwise they would have been completely surrounded and cut off from the rest of the Macedonian army. By so doing, Simeas had unavoidably opened a gap in the Macedonian left center, and a large column of Indian and Persian horse from the Persian right center had galloped forward through this interval and right through the troops of the Macedonian second line. 
instead of then wheeling round upon Parmenio, or upon the rear of Alexander's conquering wing, the Indian and Persian cavalry rode straight on to the Macedonian camp, overpowered the Thracians who were left in charge of it, and began to plunder. This was stopped by the phalangite troops of the second line, who, after the enemy's horsemen had rushed by them, faced about, countermarched upon the camp, killed many of the Indians and Persians in the act of plundering, and forced the rest to ride off again. Just at this crisis, Alexander had been recalled from his pursuit of Darius, by tidings of the distress of Parmenio, and of his inability to bear up any longer against the hot attacks of Mazeus. Taking his horse guards with him, Alexander rode toward the part of the field where his left wing was fighting, but on his way thither he encountered the Persian and Indian cavalry on their return from his camp. These men now saw that their only chance of safety was to cut their way through, and in one huge column they charged desperately upon the Macedonian regiments. There was here a close hand-to-hand -hand fight which lasted some time, and sixty of the royal horse guards fell, and three generals who fought close to Alexander's side were wounded. At length the Macedonian discipline and valor again prevailed, and a large number of the Persian and Indian horsemen were cut down, some few only succeeding in breaking through and riding away. Relieved of these obstinate enemies, Alexander again formed his regiments of horse guards and led them toward Parmenio, but by this time that general also was victorious. Probably the news of Darius' flight had reached Mazeus, and had damped the ardor of the Persian right wing, while the tidings of their comrades' success must have proportionally encouraged the Macedonian forces under Parmenio. His Thessalian cavalry particularly distinguished themselves by their gallantry and preserving good conduct, and by the time that Alexander had ridden up to Parmenio, the whole Persian army was in full flight from the field. It was of the deepest importance to Alexander to secure the person of Darius, and he now urged on the pursuit. The river Lycus was between the field of battle and the city of Arbella, whither the fugitives directed their course, and the passage of this river was even more destructive to the Persians than the swords and spears of the Macedonians had been in the engagement. The narrow bridge was soon choked up by the flying thousands who rushed toward it, and vast numbers of the Persians threw themselves or were hurried by others into the rapid stream and perished in its waters. Darius had crossed it, and had ridden on through Arbella without halting. Alexander reached the city on the next day, and made himself master of all Darius's treasure and stores. But the Persian king, unfortunately for himself, had fled too fast for his conqueror, but had only escaped 
to perish by the treachery of his Bactrian satrap, Bessus. A few days after the battle, Alexander entered Babylon, the oldest seat of earthly empire then in existence, as its acknowledged lord and master. There were yet some campaigns of his brief and bright career to be accomplished. Central Asia was yet to witness the march of his phalanx. He was yet to effect that conquest of Afghanistan in which England since has failed. His generalship as well as his valor was yet to be signalized on the banks of the Hidaspis and the field of Chilianwala, and he was yet to precede the Queen of England in annexing the Punjab to the dominions of a European sovereign. But the crisis of his career was reached. The great object of his mission was accomplished, and the ancient Persian Empire, which once menaced all the nations of the earth with subjection, was irreparably crushed, when Alexander had won his crowning victory at Arbela. End of section 17